Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Ahmad Hassan, who is the founder and CEO of Retina. Retina enables businesses to focus on customer-level profitability. They have the only product that predicts long-term lifetime value of new customers, enabling growth marketers to make campaign and channel budget optimization decisions in near real time. In this episode, we go through how Ahmad started and grew this business over time, what they focus on at this point, a bit of their fundraising side of things as well. They have investors like Crosscut Ventures, Luma Launch, and more. And we go through a variety of other topics as always in the show. The show notes are justgogrind.com slash podcast, and you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over an Apple podcast. Without further ado, here is Ahmad Hassan, the founder and CEO of Retina. Ahmad, welcome to the show. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Yes, absolutely. And you have a, a plethora of experience in data analytics and, and such. And with with Retina, though, I'm curious as to what is Retina for people who aren't familiar or haven't really heard about it yet? And then uh, I want to also go into how you actually started the company. Yeah. So uh, Retina is a data science platform that's specializes in one analytic, which is customer lifetime value. And customer lifetime value is a really interesting metric because it's talked about pretty much in every business, uh, but everybody defines it very, very differently. And the way that I think about, and I, I I think the problem can be stated very clearly is if you think about all the products that are sold in the world that are priced between $1 and $250, you are and you go try to sell that online what's going to happen is you're going to acquire the acquire customers that are going to cost you more than forty dollars very likely so imagine you're selling a t-shirt for 25 dollars and you get a customer for 25 40 dollars all of a sudden you're upside down on your on your <laughs> profitability yep. and where you can take heart as a business is like you expect customers to come back once you acquire them they like your they wear your t-shirt they like they like it their next t-shirt they'll want to buy from you and you're going to make up for that loss on the first transaction. That's where we come in. We we try to predict customer lifetime value at that first transaction. So you know which customers to go after and which customers to avoid because they might bring you, they might be that one one and done type of a customer. And then in February 2017 is roughly when you started. I know people's dates for starting on the LinkedIn is a little different than potentially when they actually started. But take me through the the foundation, like how this actually uh, came to be with Retina. Yeah, really good question. So, um, you know, my my background, as uh, you mentioned, is a lot in data science and data analytics. Uh, But when we first started, we said... In 2017, we were like, we'll just do data science and analytics for companies that uh, don't have a strong data science team or might have a strong data science team, but need some help. And we started working with a couple of pretty large companies. And for example, Dollar Shave Club was one of them. Uh, And in fact, uh, we also worked with Coefficient Labs at some point. Uh, And what was really interesting is what the trends we saw. And... One of the big trends we saw was this customer lifetime value problem that came up again and again. And we started working on that problem. We knew that if we could solve this problem, even in a very basic way at that time, uh, we could build a business on that. So we started working away on that. We raised our funding in September 2017 uh, for our seed round. And then we were off to the races. 
and with that, then working with the, these companies on that side of things, how did that how did that evolve to what you are today? Just to give people kind of the overview of Retina, because that was the initial uh, 2017. How did that evolve into what you are uh, today, three and a half years later? Yeah, it has evolved quite a bit. Uh, so, the, you know, evolution of a business, especially a venture-backed business, comes in uh, in multiple ways. And you know, if you are a big fan of Porter's Five Forces, that, that's probably one of the more <laughs> um, clear, clear, clear drivers. So, what's what's happened is we started working on this problem. We saw that this would be a big problem in the advertising space, in customer retention space, in customer service space, and kept working away on this problem with our customers that we had. And if, what it has evolved to is the use case in customer acquisition, because we found that most businesses, they spend most of their money with a customer early on when, to acquire them. That's where you're going to spend most amount of money. So there, there are lots of interesting things you can do to increase the retention of customers, increase their lifetime value. But over, you know, when we first started, we said we we're going to do customer lifetime value for all kinds of use cases. But now what we've evolved to is say, hey, look, let's solve this one big problem where you're spending most amount of money acquiring a customer that can enable you to have a better experience for a customer, but also making sure you're targeting the right customer. And to dive into your your history a little bit, with you've worked at some some pretty big companies in the analytics data data side of things with Facebook and, and PayPal. Uh, I want I'm curious about those those experiences and kind of maybe what you took away from from that time you spent at those companies. Yeah, so uh, I took away a lot. I, I you know if you think about like how most software startups that I get to see today, they start with uh, generally people coming out of school, they've gotten their computer science degree or math degree and have looked at a pro old problem in a very new way or have seen a new technology bring up ways to solve a new problem that didn't exist. And they will go build that from scratch. And I think those are very, very like commendable businesses. I, I'm excited to see when those happen. My path was almost the opposite. I spent a lot of time building experience and expertise in a couple of topics that I could go dive deep into. And uh, just to give you a sense of that story, when I first graduated, I so at, at, at heart, I'm an engineer, I'm a builder. I like building stuff. I like taking technology and applying it to problems that's, uh, that, are, that people are facing and bringing solutions that way. But I started off as an engineer building autopilots for helicopters and satellites. And this was really fun as a graduate, you know, you know get your electrical engineering degree, you're working on a really interesting, very technical problem. Uh, after doing that for about six years, I was like, look, I'm working on these really hard problems where I'm building uh, automation and control, control system design for these very technical products like helicopters and satellites. Can I apply it to a different field? And that was, that, that was the first thought I had. Uh, and I was like, how do I do this? I was like, oh, maybe I should go to get a degree in business. So I ended up going to business school. Uh, during business school, I there were most most of my colleagues were like, "Hey, consulting or investment banking is the way to go." I did consulting for a couple of years and hated it. Uh, I went from being an engineer to a PowerPoint engineer, and <laughs> I did not enjoy that very much. Uh, and soon after, soon after, I said, "Look, I need to go back to technology." But having said that, I I knew that what I wanted to do is 
all of that work I was doing at uh, Sikorsky Aircraft and Boeing as an engineer building autopilots, I was like, I want to take that over to the customer interaction world and the customer tech consumer technology world. And that meant that I wanted to go to, I would have had to go to a company which had a lot of data where a lot of it could be uh, tested out. A lot of the ideas that I had could be tested out. And uh, that led me to working in the Bay Area for a little bit where I worked at big technology companies like PayPal and Facebook. While I was working there, after I solved some of the problems that I got to solve for those companies, I was like, these problems that we're solving here are very interesting. And I bet these problems exist for many other companies that are not PayPal and Facebook. So how do I go solve it at scale for a lot of these other companies that could benefit from solutions that we were building at PayPal and Facebook? And that was part of the way that I ended up at the um, idea of Retina. I was very lucky because I got met some amazing people along the way, other fellow co-founders. I met my, my uh, own co-founder who had built and sold the company before and found a team that really, uh, you know, believed in these ideas as well. And they were seeing the same problem from their perspective. And that's where, uh, you know, as much as I'd like to tell you that uh, I would, you know, I had a lot to do with the story of Retina. It is really a story of, you know, three people who started and then those three people became a bigger team and we've continued, you know, to grow, grow since then. From that experience then, understand that like PayPal and Facebook, these massive companies, a ton of resources, how is it adjusting to then a startup where you don't have those same resources, yeah. you don't have that at your disposal? I mean, how is that for you adjusting from, from that? Yeah, it's really, that's a, that's a fascinating question because you go from managing a, you know, $90 million budget to like, <laughs> hey, now you got to do everything bootstrapped. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's a very big learning curve. Uh, and in fact, what I didn't tell you about my career is the eight months I spent after I left Facebook. So I spent uh, two years at Facebook after two years, uh, decided, uh, you know, my wife and I had a very frank conversation of like, hey, you know, I really want to go build a startup. Uh, it's great that we have, we both have these uh, progressing careers in, in, in big corporate companies, but I really wanted to take a chance on building out a startup. She was very supportive, which was amazing. And I basically left Facebook and started a company from scratch. And Retina was not the first company I started. It was another company called Expertly. It had basically a mission of helping people who did not have access to networks that would get them very, very like top tier jobs. How do we get mentorship going and people to like interact with each other to have that? And what it did, what that product did was it would scrape LinkedIn for, uh, and I, I'm not sure if I should have said that on a, on a podcast, but since it doesn't exist anymore, it would basically <laughs> scrape LinkedIn to find uh, people who would be interested in meeting each other anyway. And then it would make one introduction a month to uh, two people who could be in a mentor-mentee relationship. And it would do that on a weekly, bi-weekly basis and make, make these like introductions that could generate co basically coffees for each other, coffee chats for each other. But what's really interesting about that experience is one, putting together a team that had the right skill sets for that, um, putting together a sales plan that could scale revenues for that. All of that was so difficult. And I realized the that you cannot just apply the principles, 
processes, and even the talent that you have at, at larger companies to a very small bootstrap company. It's just not the right thing, not the right, it's, it's, it would never work. Yeah. But those eight months that I built a, that company, uh, I would say that was a very, uh, it was a huge catastrophic failure from a building a business point of view because I made a lot of the mistakes that you want to make to learn some really big, important lessons. And if you ask me, like, what are like the key lessons to learn that 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 I applied towards Retina? Yeah. Team is probably the most important thing that you can start with. And the litmus test of the team is that you should have a team that has, especially if you're building a venture scale business and it, it has a technology component, you need two very important skill sets. One is somebody who can build and build a scalable product fast. Uh, and second, you need somebody who can sell and sell, sell the product in a very effective, compelling way really fast and do it as, in, with full commitment. And with full commitment, by that I mean is that they are not doing this as their side job. They quit their day job to go do this. That's how much they believe on it. Um, so that was kind of a huge lesson, you know? Yeah, yeah, and then one that just reminded me of uh, Naval Ravikant, who mentioned in one of his like his tweet storms of of saying, "Learn to build, learn to sell. If you can do both, you'll be unstoppable." And that goes back to exactly. your point. Yeah, you have to have both in the team because exactly. that's that's essentially what it comes down to. Uh, with that, one thing I want to go back to you mentioned, you just kind of gloss over, but I, I think it's important that conversation or even going from the big company, understanding you want to start a startup. How did you get to that point where you knew? You want to start a startup, and then how did you bring that up as well as your wife? Yeah, really good question. So I definitely didn't ever. Yeah, I, I knew I was going to start a startup long time ago. So back when I was a undergrad, I was um, very inspired by the DARPA Grand Challenge, which was the um, which was the um, project that was first building autonomous vehicles. And I was like, you know, there's eventually going to be a company that does this. Uh, and I know that at some point I'd like to be involved in a company that can do this kind of work. And then I also did, took an entrepreneurship class, which was where I built my first business, which was basically uh, using my electrical engineering skills to build long range uh, Wi-Fi antennas that could catch internet from about two miles away. So you, and so I built, built those and sold those to off-campus students so they could use campus Wi-Fi from wherever their apartment was. And that I knew at that time that I wanted to go, that that's where my heart was. I unfortunately uh, graduated with a lot of student loans and uh, desire from myself and my family to go to graduate school. So I spent some time doing that. And then I spent some more time paying back graduate student loans. <laughs> so the moment I could actually leave my day job, uh, I, I did. Uh, and it was a pretty easy conversation with my with my wife because I remember meeting her the first day that I met her. Uh, I was very clear about this that this is one thing I was going to go do, and <laughs> if she if she wanted to be on this journey with me, then she'd have to sign up for it. And uh, we we uh, you know you know we battle about that every now and then, saying hey look was this the right thing to do or not? But yeah, that's how it got started. I'm just taking notes for for a future girlfriend. So uh, I'm single now. <laughs> single now. So now I know. Got to bring it up early. That okay. So exactly. just so you know, starting businesses is kind of what I'm interested <laughs> in doing. I uh, hope that's okay with you. Yeah, uh, and 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 be be clear about like you know what I the mistake I made was I only showed I only talked about 
how glorious it is when the business has a great outcome. What I didn't tell her is the, is the grind you go through when you're building it. So maybe that, that is a lesson learned. You should bring that up. That's in those commercials where they have that the very end, they talk really fast about the risks and all that sort of yeah, thing. Exactly. <laughs> like, oh, and by the way, it might fail. Cash traffic might be out of money. Okay, cool. But are you, are you on board? Um, and exactly. go, going from that experience, uh, understand that you had the school thing as well, not going to USC, first mistake there. Uh, kidding. <laughs> 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 and leading, leading into- Well, let me prove you wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I had to bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> so with Retina then, coming back to, you go from that experience of big companies, you try to start your own company, uh, you do it for eight months. How did that transition go then from expertly to, to Retina? Yeah, good question. So um, one thing that I would say the big company experience gave me is uh, work ethic that uh, I could bring to, work ethic and discipline that I could bring to the startup world. And that meant... Um, uh, and the ability to work a, a large number of hours uh, <laughs> at any given time. And that I carried into expertly. But in going into Retina, the other two points I didn't mention earlier that were important were pursuing an idea that are... So first, you got a team. Great. But the other two very important things, if you're building a venture scale business, is going after a huge idea. It's very important that what you end up pursuing matters and matters to the world in some way or the some way or form. And, you know, it, it's true for a venture scale business that it's a hu absolutely huge idea, but it doesn't have to be. If you're not pursuing a venture idea, which is totally okay, because there are plenty of great businesses that are built that are not venture backed, uh, you need to have that clarity of what the impact of your, of your work will be uh, and why it's important to you and the people around you. Uh, so having that and lastly, showing traction, I think that's also a very, very important thing that I was, I, and I should say my whole team was very focused on at Retina is what are we doing? What, what, what insights are we bringing to the table that nobody else has? And then what are we doing in terms of our deliverables that show traction that we are making progress in the right direction? And that's, that also is a very difficult thing to know because you can keep chugging along with very incremental progress that may not amount to a huge impact, but knowing what that progress ha has to be and if that progress is meaningful uh, is an important thing that I had to like, make sure I stayed focused on. With Retina, with, as you've have you progressed over time, kind of evolved the business model as well, how has your customer acquisition strategy evolved and what was that looking at, especially early on with, with Retina and progressing towards today? Because that's, I mean, that's the huge name of the game is how you're acquiring customers. I'm curious on just how you've approached that over time, Ahmad. Yeah, really good, good question. So um, the what makes it very difficult for a SaaS business, which has an R&D arm, is that you are selling not only uh, the product today, but also the vision of the product one or two years from now. And that's very, very hard because you are having to like sell somebody on the value of the problem and then the solution that you're building for them, right? So yeah. uh, first thing is like, do you even care about customer lifetime value? Like maybe, maybe many companies uh, don't even know what that is, what that is. Right? They're thinking, hey, look, I sell a T-shirt and I know what the margins on those T-shirts are and that's it. 
Like that's how they're, how they look at their business. And that, that could be totally fine if you somehow figure out amazing LTV to CAC ratios or amazing return on ad spend. So going back to like, you know, what was the most important aspect of sell, you know, selling to customers and customer acquisition, it's generally looking at who are your early adopters and who are the ones who believe in your vision and thinking about that and then going after them. It doesn't, it, like, what's really, what's really interesting is if you've figured out who that customer is, who that ideal customer profile is, then going after them can be very easy. Uh, but if you haven't, then it can be very, very hard. In early days, it was actually very hard. Uh, and here, a lot of our networks helped knowing people in this space and having a lot of experience, having a set of advisors and investors who could make a lot of, a lot of recommendations and referrals. But as we have gone, uh, gone along, we've basically now had customers who refer other customers and obviously eventually you build out a sales team. Uh, so those are kind of, kind of the three stages that, you know, we've gone through, uh, but it could be different for any different companies, I would imagine. And to that point, one thing you mentioned uh, with the investors, investor side of things and raising funds, you talk about raising a seed round, but I mean, you had investors like Crosscut, Luma, Comcast. How has the fundraising part of it gone for you guys? How, how have you, was your approach been to that as well? I'm curious. Um, good question. Uh, on the fundraising side, look, it's, a, it's, it's two components that you should consider when fundraising. One is uh, obviously there is a monetary amount of uh, value that you need to capture and think about how much of the company are you going to give up to get that capital in that will help you grow. But then the second aspect is what is the, what is the value of that network and strategic guidance that the investor can bring? And to us, like that has been an extremely important aspect. Uh, so thinking about all of these investors that you just named, they are very, very active in the company and they are helpful in not only making introductions, but also giving us guidance on the problems that they've seen in the past that come and help help us avoid the mistakes that companies uh, may, may make who don't have the, uh, you know, who, who haven't had the experience of going through this cycle, um, you know, over and over again. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's a, those are the things to kind of think about. There are lots of other nuances on how you approach fundraising. In fact, I've written uh, and given talks on, you know, the 50 like big mistakes and tips uh, that I would recommend on fundraising and how to think about it. Um, I've sh- I, I can share share a link on that as well. Yeah, and I can link, link that up in the show notes at justgogrind.com slash podcast. Are there a couple that you think would be worthwhile sharing on, on the show? Absolutely. Uh, so um, I will, I will, I'll share the non-obvious ones that like not everybody's ta- talking about. So uh, if you think about the ones that like you'll hear most commonly raise money when you don't need it and you know, all those kind of things. I'll tell you a couple that uh, where people will tell you what to do and what you shouldn't do. Uh, so if you ever attend a talk by a VC or if you ever, you know, look, you know, listen to a podcast from, from them, they'll be like, all right, if you have a great idea, send me an email and then you'll send them an email and then they'll, they'll be like, all right, send me your deck and then you'll send them your deck and they'll never hear from them again. And I absolutely think that is the, most incorrect way to approach investors. Uh, never email, cold email them. Uh, that's my like number one, number one advice. 
Um, secondly, I would recommend uh, never sending your pitch deck. So how should you do that? So first and foremost valuable kind of introduction to your investor is through other founders. So other founders who've raised money, have absolutely email them because they're the ones who will potentially make introductions to VCs. And when they're making that introduction, they're kind of putting their reputation on the line as well. So first thing is go make friends with other founders who've raised money get them to a point where they are convinced of your idea to a point where they're willing to put their reputation on the line to make introductions to an investor. And lastly, uh, don't send them your pitch deck because the moment you send your pitch deck, uh, you have lost control of the conversation. I typically would recommend getting on a call. So let's say that that introduction was made and you're now getting on a call. You get on a call and you describe to them uh, your team. Uh, the market, the problem you are solving, and the market opportunity, and the traction you have had so far, and they, those are the things that you can share at most. But more importantly, you're on that call trying to understand the investor and trying to find out uh, what type of investing they do, what stage do they invest in, how much, uh, what what types of che checks do they write, do they typically lead around, do they fo do follow-on funding, uh, what how you know where are they in their fund, have they deployed most of their capital? Because you know, if you, if you find out that they've pretty much deployed two thirds of their capital and have reserved the rest of it for their existing portfolio companies, you know they could be a great fit as a as an investor, but they don't have the money to invest. So you shouldn't be wasting your time uh, sending them pitch decks. And uh, another important thing to know is your pitch deck is going to get shared, right? It's so easy to share your pitch pitch deck and. You, you don't necessarily want to share like everything you know at that time yeah. uh, with investors. And one one thing we, I mean, obviously you need to dig into a lot here uh, and I think it would be most helpful because it's what you focus on all the time, but customer lifetime value. What are mm -hmm. some of those those metrics and things that go into that or things that people should be thinking about because that's kind of the obvious no-brainer we have to, have to discuss because that's your expertise. Yeah, absolutely. So look, if you're a B2B business with like, you know, 20 to 200 accounts, customer lifetime value is pretty uh, clear because you have annual contracts and you have a very good sense of like if a certain account's going to land or not and if they're going to renew or not, how many years you expect them to renew, if they're going to expand. So it's a pretty solvable problem from the intuition of the company as well as like what can be put, put down into Excel. Uh, where customer lifetime value becomes hard is when you're running a very long tail business where you have 1 million, 2 million, you know, millions of customers that you can't really put down on Excel and you can't do a mat, the math on forecasting out every single customer's behavior. Uh, that's where it becomes very hard and important. Uh, and it's important because if you think about customer lifetime value and you're like, if, if let's say you had a business, uh, for, you know, that was growing, you've got, gotten a million customers. If I said, hey, what is the customer lifetime value of your average customer? You might say, you know what, the easiest thing I can do is just sum up the values of customers I acquired five years ago and see what how much money I've made. You're like, yep, I can do that, but the business that I have today is not very relevant to the business customers I acquired five years ago, so how do you solve that problem? Yeah. Then you say, hey, you know what, I can just sum up the revenues of all customers. If you do that, then you have the problem of where 
your most recently acquired customers haven't had the chance to do to have a longer purchasing journey, and you're going to start to confuse recent customers as low value customers. So that's why the importance of solving this problem at the customer level is actually fairly important. Most companies have enough data to do this. They just don't have the know-how on how to do this at the moment. And that's where uh, we've thought about how do you kind of do this at the customer level? Because then it allows you to take three strategic actions. One is how do you avoid getting that low value customer so that you're not unprofitable on any customer that you acquire? How do you increase the LTV of the customer base that you have, which is the middle like 20th percentile to the 80th percentile group of customers? Can you do, should you do retention strategies? Should you launch a new product? What particular product improves their experience? And then how do you acquire your non-average long tail, super high value customer? That's uh, probably the most uh, you know, useful thing that you get or insight. You shouldn't be building a business for your average customer. You should be building a business that is enhancing the value of your highest value customers. And this is a problem that we get to see all the time, right? Like if you're going to try to like launch a new product, you'll go do an interview and you're going to take the average of your customer base and the average of your customer base, probably not the best type of customer to go pursue. You want customers who are the better than the average customers. With this, with understanding all of that, and, and you said most companies have enough of enough data. Well, for you then, in, in that in that regard, like what is enough data? Like what do they need in terms of being able to like kind of more accurately predict this or even have enough that's useful? I guess I'm kind of curious about that side of things. Yeah, really good question. So if you are if you have acquired customers for let's say you just started a business and you've been acquiring customers for a couple of months. You have enough user data that you can throw this data onto Excel and see, hey, what's the pattern of buying? How often are customers coming back? And how often are they churning? Uh, so you can do that, and that you can do on Excel. The problem gets harder when you've gotten to like 18 months of data, and now you have more than 10,000 customers, and you're trying to like finagle that on Excel or Google Sheets. At that <laughs> point, you need a better tool. But even earlier than that, you can start to kind of do this. And there's a super like secret formula of understanding back of the envelope customer lifetime value. And you could do this from anything. You could do this for your podcast to see how many repeat repeat listeners keep coming back. Basically, you can look at retention rate per month or per year, whatever that you want to use. So let's say that a business that sells uh, you know, T-shirts is selling them for $10 and the retention rate is 90% customers come back each year, you take that number and you multiply it out by the average order value you expect each year. And that's your customer lifetime value. So if you expect retention rate to be 90%, you and, and you expect them to purchase, let's say 10 t-shirts a year, that's $100, $100 multiplied by 90%, that's $90 lifetime value. Um, that's so you can kind of think about it from that perspective, right? Um, but yeah, and and with with that in mind, and, and with who you're working with, I'm curious as to like understanding who are kind of your ideal customers with Retina AI. Understanding that from other people's perspectives, then like you mentioned, some of you've worked with, but who are kind of those ideal customers that are most benefited by working with Retina? Yeah, the most ideal customers uh, that we work with are customers 
who don't get to see customers lifetime value at the first transaction. So for example, let's say you're in the wedding business and you know, your wedding photography business and your customer generally is only getting married uh, once and you're, you're, you're going to know the value of the customer the moment you have the transaction. But if you're relying on long-term interaction with the customer, such as streaming business like Netflix, or um, if you're selling a subscription uh, service somewhere else, that's where you need to understand customer lifetime value. And you want to be profitable at the customer le- customer level, not just at the unit economics level. With a company, with a media company like that, in that long tail, I mean, it's a, such a long-term thing with a subscription. I- I'm curious as to what you're kind of, what are you looking for along the way in terms of those, those metrics? And uh, how do you then use, use the data, use the understanding to dictate what you should be doing in, in the business? Because you have all those insights. I- I'm curious how, how that dictates what you do within the company as well. Yeah, and what you do is most importantly, you treat uh, every customer uh, based on their value to the business. And what the way you, you and I'll give you one quick example. Sure. Uh, let's say that you're, uh, you know, let's let's stick with the t-shirt example and you see, you, you see a customer that comes back every three months to buy one. They really love your brand and you haven't uh, seen them for six months. They're probably about to churn and you might want to send them a retention email. Saying, hey, look, we have an offer going on. Here's like the, the T-shirt you used to buy for ten dollars. We're selling it for three dollars today. Uh, might be, and you just keep that relationship alive. Whereas if you have another customer that tends to come back every year uh, during Thanksgiving and they buy four shirts, and you haven't seen them for six months, no big deal because you expect to see them at the next Thanksgiving, and no need to give them a promotion because you're scared they might not come back. Yeah. So different rules for different people. Along the way with Retina, with, with the complexities of this and understanding you're using uh, machine learning, AI, et cetera, what have been just overall with Retina the biggest challenges, whether it be one or two things that are along the way have been, been challenging for you? Uh, you had a lot of lessons I know you mentioned from your previous company, but growing Retina the last, uh, last bit of time here, what has been kind of the biggest challenges for you? Yeah, I think my, the, the way I think about challenges are in different buckets of the business. Um, so people, is, so for my first like biggest challenge for Retina that we faced is talent. Uh, so the kind of work that we do and the expertise that we need, we require the team. The team has to be mostly data scientists and engineers who not only understand building software but also the science of like customer uh, analytics and customer behavior. And that's extremely specialized and difficult. And finding talent that is really, really good at just not only the data science side, but be also implementation of that into the business side and very quickly enabling business use cases, I think is a pretty challenging aspect of the business that we've had to overcome and figure it out. Um, and then there are other aspects that if you think about the product side, like should you be building a product that's very like fancy and looks great from the UX UI perspective, uh, or do we say, hey, look, the core of the business is the data science and everything can happen in the back end and enabling use cases for technical people to use. So finagling with those type of questions. Uh, and then obviously uh, you have thinking about sales, especially for a product where it's a product that you have to sell the, sell the problem and the solution in case, the, in case where 
customers don't already know the problem or they're not feeling the problem. Uh, and that, that happens with any type of a business that's creating a new category completely. Uh, it's, it, it's a lot of education and getting people on board with the ROI of solving a problem and then saying, hey, your solution is the right fit for it. It's funny you mentioned that last point. So the person I interviewed right before you, I mentioned interviewing like three people a day, roughly. Um, I was the founder of Ready Set Food, and they're uh, basically yeah. the food allergies for people for 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 children, essentially infants. Um, and edu- it's like yeah. they have to educate the entire market around these food allergies, and that you can give them a small amount from a, a young age, then build up like whether it be a tolerance, whatever you would call it, uh, so they, they don't get these food allergies. But there's a whole education component for that. So they have to create content, partner with people, do all that sort of thing to be able to educate their market. How are you going about educating the market around what you're doing? Yeah, really good question. And to us, the this is this is the fun part of all this is we are a bunch of engineers who are not salespeople. We like and we all hate being salespeople. <laughs> uh, we like the idea of demonstrating value and then than actually delivering it. And even if like somebody doesn't want to work with Retina, I think it's more exciting and important that they understand if the concept of lifetime value is applicable to them and if they can generate ROI. There are many use cases around customer lifetime value that we have not, the world hasn't solved yet, which is customer service based lifetime value, ad relevance. Like you see all these ads on Facebook, Instagram, Google, that are probably and probably ninety percent of which are not relevant to you, and that's causing a lot of pain for a lot of people because it's making the user experience bad, and you don't you're like, why am I seeing these? That can be made super relevant by like optimizing your ads by customer lifetime value, and we're excited to see that people are getting excited about that, um, and and that's totally okay with us. On the people side of it, you mentioned being a, a big challenge there as well and getting the right talent and the, the very technical talent. Uh, what's been most helpful for you or at least like what's been your strategy? Because there's different agencies you can work with. There's different websites you can go to. Uh, I'm just curious on for, for you guys at now, what have you done on that side? Yeah, I mean, look, the biggest uh, um, success for us has been having a interview process that is very objective on knowing what skill sets we need and then talking to a bunch of people, uh, followed by another thing that we've done, which is hire out of programs like uh, that, that have, you know, that have data science talent. That's what they're like focused on. And then we'll get those out, uh, get those people, train them, and then, then get them going from that point of view. Uh, so those are kind of the two strategies. And I'm not sure they're differentiated because that's what everybody is doing. Um, and, and it's just been a big, like talent war in that, from that point of view. And then thinking about like, what's going on, like what, you know, what makes it even harder is super, the, the, the fang companies have made it very hard to hire these kind of talent, this kind of talent, at least pre COVID, because what they were doing is they were just, you know, scooping up all of this talent. And if you're a data scientist who, uh, you know, what has, has an opportunity to go work some go work somewhere would you go rather work for a big stable company or at a very early stage startup uh and you know many people for many people the 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 journey of going to a big stable company might be the right journey and in that case like it's it and that that becomes a harder challenge for us how do you compete uh with that then or what's your pitch to then 
And when you really find someone that's ha- even has those options potentially, and then you're like, Hey, but you should come work for Retin. I mean, just like, what, what is that for other, for their entrepreneurs right. out there who are in a similar position? I'm curious as to what you are doing about that. Yeah. I mean, look, it's uh, most of the people that we end up hiring are pre-sold in the sense that they know they don't want to go work for the man. Uh, you know, they want, they want to, they want to do something different. They want to have an impact and they want to have a career growth that's much more accelerated than their peers. If you go work for one of these big companies, it's very likely you're essentially a cog in the system and you're working on one tiny problem. And while when you're at Retina or a company that's at an earlier stage, you get to wear many hats and solve many different problems. So from a career point of view, you, what you're doing is you're saying, you know what, I might not make uh, the kind of compensation that I would make at these super large companies. But what I am doing is I'm optimizing to spend early part of my career in learning a lot. And then you can, you can, because you can, at the end of the day, still go work for super large companies uh, after you work for a startup. But it's generally uh, the other way around is not very true. It's very hard to go from working at a very large company to getting a job at a super early stage startup. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. And you can always do the other, like you said. It, 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 right. it, depending on where you start, obviously it makes it easier or harder, but you can't. You do have options to do others. Uh, but learning fast and getting a lot of experience early on, especially, I mean, there's a lot of value in that. And uh, one thing we haven't discussed yet, but I, I want to dive into a little bit more is uh, on the product side, I mean, how do you look at what kind of products, services, training you're going to offer, understanding like, the insights you're capable of, the knowledge you have, the expertise on board, because we talked about how there's a whole education component and everything, but even looking at the products and services you offer to, to different companies, how do you look at that or prioritize that as well? Yeah, I mean, that's a very good question from a product management point of view. Um, we, and again, there, like uh, quite a bit of uh, training that I've had working at these larger companies is very helpful because it's very clear, like every time I, I, I have this kind of problem, it's like what product feature we should prioritize. The next step is you go talk to customers. You talk to, and typically after you've had a chat with 40 different customers on a particular problem, they will give you a couple of pieces of insight that will help you make that decision. Uh, so it, making it, doing it from a data-driven lens to the extent possible is very, very uh, helpful. And then, secondly, having uh, uh, some sort of a some sort of a intuition around what will be the problem that will be a problem not today, but six months from now, two years from now, will also be really helpful because you don't want to be the problem that exists today. There's probably other companies that have already thought through the solution to that uh, six months ago. You know, so yeah. having some foresight is really useful. And Ahmad, taking a, a step back from, from Retina and things you're doing there, I mean, how do you recharge kind of away from work? Yeah, really good question. Uh, in fact, I've found the value of recharging more and more over time. Uh, I used to spend very little time recharging. And now I make sure I'm getting better sleep uh, because sleep is turned out, turns out to be a very, very important factor in, in enabling creativity. Uh, and then secondly, I'll always take some time every day, maybe an hour or two to just spend time with my family and I'm completely disconnected. And then on the weekends, I'll take at least one of the two days where I'm not doing any work and spending time playing beach volleyball when possible. No, not not so much these days, uh, (laughs) cooking or doing something else that's just not related to work. 
Um, those, those two, those are things that like, and obviously I'm biased by recency because I would have said hanging out with friends or having like other conversations, <laughs> doing other things that don't get to do anymore. But it's, I think it's extremely important. And I highly recommend a book uh, called Why We Sleep yeah, as one that like, that, that I've found to be really helpful that talks about this. Yeah. And the, the author was on Joe Rogan's podcast. Uh, that's how I heard of it as well. Um, and on, yeah. that, on that note with, with books as well, any other books, uh, personal or, or professional that have been kind of impactful for you? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I read a lot. So I, I've, I really like um, especially management and business books, but I'll just give one that I have gone back to again and again, and especially useful for startups is Hard Things About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. Yep. That that's a good one. And there's he has a he's another one out there as, as well. What you do is what yeah. you are the culture one. Right, right, right. Yeah, I haven't read that one yet. Yeah, I mean it's definitely good perspective, and I appreciate that for from the book side as well. And uh, one thing uh, as well, looking at, I'm just curious from stepping away from work, and I don't know when these all happen, but uh, you have a blog as well that you may have some things on about different special life events. Any particular ones from there? whether it be bungee jumping off of a bridge into a river, for instance, uh, hiking the Grand Canyon in a day that has been, I, I don't know if, like, I, well, the question is around this. When do you do those events or when do you find time to do things like this? Like, or just like more once in a lifetime yeah. things? And how does that fit into your life with business too? When I work, so good thing about working in big companies is you could go have a lot of fun because you, you I, did, I used to do all those now I don't do as much of those additional things. I've I've made it a focus that I spend, you know, work as my number one priority, uh, along with my uh, family and giving time to them, and then uh, spending some time in some doing some sort of physical activity like playing beach volleyball or going for a run or going for a hike. Um, right now I'm kind of very focused on that, but there were times in my life where I got a chance to do some really exciting things, and I hope I can get to go do those again at some point. Uh, but yeah, it's just focus and different, and you can have focus and work-life balance in different times of your life. And uh, I feel like I've I've been, I've been fortunate that I got a chance to do that. And even blogging, I feel like I I wish I could write more, and yeah. uh, I don't get as much of time to do that. But time to time, I'll I'll still write. But right now, mostly focused on very relevant uh, work-related blogs. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, like you mentioned, there's there's different times throughout your life, you'll be, you'll be focused on other mm-hmm. things. And like, whether it be like you have your family now with, with your startup versus a time when you're at a big company and just a different, different time in your life, I'm sure. Um, and then just looking back at your, your kind of journey so far with, with starting now, this is your second company at least, and then being at big companies and uh, all these different experiences for other entrepreneurs out there. I mean, is there any, any other lessons, takeaways, anything else you want to leave them with um, just looking back at your experience so far? Yeah, look, I, one one little like lesson or litmus test that I'll try to give, which uh, I don't hear often, is people often saying, "Hey, you know what? I'm going to work on this like side idea and uh, work on it as a startup idea." I think that's great. The moment you decide that, "Hey, I want to go pursue a startup," uh, I I think you need to do one litmus test, and that one litmus test is. It will will truly check if your idea is great or not. Um, if you could convince one other person who has a day job uh, that could be very useful or beneficial to working on the idea with, if you can convince them to leave their day job to work on the idea with you, then you probably have something. 
And by what that means is that you, there are two people who are saying, you know what, we were going to, we're going to leave our day jobs where we were making a good enough money to go work on this idea. If you've done that, then very likely you can bring investors along and other people are along. But if you can't convince yourself and one other person to go quit and work on an idea uh, on that one, one particular idea full time, then you, you, you may or may not be ready. You need to like question that. And where can people go to learn more about Retina and connect with you as well? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I am on Twitter and on uh, LinkedIn. So you can follow me there, uh, reach out to me there. And then about Retina, just go to our website, retina.ai. And happy to uh, you know answer any questions that may come through, through there. And then you can always email, email us at info at retina.ai. Perfect. I'll be sure to link those up in the show notes as well. Just go grind.com slash podcast. Ahmad, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Thank you, Justin. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. The Weekly Grind, which is my weekly newsletter, comes out every single Friday. You can find it at justgogrind.com slash newsletter. This is filled with tips, tools, and strategies for growing your business. If you want to know how to launch a business, how to grow it, how to get it off the ground, find employees, all these different things. There's a few tips, tools, and strategies every single week I deliver right to you. Justgogrind.com slash newsletter. Check it out. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you in the next episode.